2: From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. For years, these United States have been fracturing, and the draft decision written by the Supreme Court's Samuel Alito, which would overturn Roe v. Wade, would also be a hammer blow to the imperfect union. Access to abortion would end up fully in the hands of states, and many in the South and Midwest would find they have no access to reproductive care. In that context, the state of California has decided to play a special role. Our people, our institutions, and our government. Today, as we stare down a post-Roe world, we talk with Bay Area and California doctors and organizers who are preparing the infrastructure to provide abortion care to people across this country. That's coming up next. Welcome to Forum, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are front lines in the fight for access to abortion. Some are in the courts, others in state legislatures, but the most immediate and often dangerous battlegrounds are the clinics in conservative states. People providing abortions have been harassed, injured, killed. And so in some places, doctors rotate in from other places. Our first guest is one of those doctors. Dr. Rebecca Taub is an OBGYN in the East Bay, and she's been traveling to Oklahoma and Kansas to provide care for women there and in neighboring states. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Tab.
3: Hi, thank you so much for having me. Can you just
2: tell us what it's like to go to the Midwest and perform these procedures?
3: Yeah, I mean, um, as you mentioned, there are definitely um, safety concerns. Um, there, It is definitely a different environment than um, providing abortion care at my local clinic uh, here in California. Um, And, you know, patients there often are traveling huge distances um, from other states, especially within the past few months with passage of Texas SB8 and um, other restrictive abortion bills. Um, And so, you know, it's often very challenging for patients to make it to us. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely a different environment than we see here in California.
2: What are the patients like? Do you Ask them about their stories or do you just sort of leave that off the table and just do the work?
3: Yeah, we're really there to do the work. Um, You know, some people do uh, feel comfortable or for some people, I think it's very helpful to share their stories. But, you know, that's not something that we ask our patients about. We trust that uh, people are able to make the best decision for themselves and their families. And we know that if they are coming to our clinic, that they need the care that we provide.
2: And you see that as a kind of care in and of itself. Yeah. Just to be, to accept people who are coming in and just do the procedure.
3: Absolutely. I mean, I think there are so many, there's so much stigma um, about abortion care and abortion providers. And um, we, you know, I, there's so much fear, I think for a lot of people um, accessing this care. And so, um, you know, when we are able to provide people with a positive experience, um, they're, it's it's they're often very grateful. And I think, unfortunately, it's often surprising to people to, um, you know, come to our clinic and and be treated with compassion.
2: Yeah. Can you just walk us through a day when you sort of arrive in one of these states?
3: Yeah. So um, when I arrive at the clinic in the morning, um, there are generally uh, several protesters outside of the clinic um, that uh, I have to drive past and then by the time the patients show up a little bit later, there can often be quite a large group of people um, outside the clinic uh, protesting. Um, We are generally scheduled to see about 25 to 35 patients a day. um, And that's both for medication abortion and for abortion procedures. Um, And we see whoever comes of that group. Um, You know, unfortunately there are often uh, many patients who don't come or we have, we have a fairly high notia rate, um, you know, for many reasons, um, often due to, you know, the long distances that people have to travel um, and, you know, often because of the, the stigma and the protesters that people have to face outside. Yeah.
0: And
2: what about you? Are you worried about your own safety while you're in these places?
3: Um, I am. I mean, I definitely, I certainly take safety precautions while I am there. um, And I take my safety very seriously. Um, You know, there is also a wonderful community of allies in these places. So it is not, um, you know, a situation where you know, I'm here surrounded by support. And then, you know, I, I'm not entering enemy territory. Um, But, uh, you know, there has been violence against abortion providers, including in the locations that I'm traveling to. So Mm -hmm. I certainly take safety very seriously. I'm very cautious. Um, You know, and that's, it's definitely on my mind when I'm there.
2: Yeah. What motivates you to do this work?
3: Um, you know, we have a lot of privilege living in California and being supported by our state legislature and, um, you know, working in a very supportive environment without significant abortion restrictions. And there are certainly patients in California who, um, you know, have difficulty accessing this care, um, whether that's for financial reasons or, um, you know, in rural patients in rural communities. Um, but, generally, you know, people here in California just don't face the same barriers to accessing this care as people in these other locations. There are many more providers here um, and generally people have better access. And so um, it was important for me as uh, an abortion provider and as an advocate um, that to travel to places where people have lower access to care and where my presence is really needed.
2: Yeah. You know, you mentioned earlier this very restrictive... Um, abortion law in Texas, uh, SB8. And you mentioned that it brought more patients uh, into the clinics that you work in from, from further and further away. So when you heard the news uh, of the draft, this leaked draft of Samuel Alito's um, decision in overturning Roe v. Wade, what, what were you thinking? I imagine you were not shocked, but what mm-hmm. was your reaction?
3: Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I was, you know, saddened, but not surprised. Um, You know, I think many of us uh, have been, you know, prepared for this or preparing for this and have, you know, kind of expected something along these lines, um, you know, for the past several months. So, I mean, it certainly lit a fire under me in terms of the urgency of, um, you know, continuing to provide this work and brainstorming ways to Um, you know, try to be able to care for more patients as we see sort of these um, you know, kind of concentric circles of access as people kind of are getting pushed farther and farther out. So mm. when Texas SBA got passed, um, our clinic in Oklahoma started seeing about two-thirds of patients coming from Texas, wow. um, whereas previously we would have, you know, maybe a handful of patients, but a, a minority to be certain. And um, our clinic in Kansas was seeing about half of patients coming from Texas. Um, and now with more restrictive laws in Oklahoma, we're seeing a very significant proportion of patients in Kansas coming from either Oklahoma or Texas. And, you know, once this Supreme Court decision comes down, assuming that it is, you know, along the lines of this leaked opinion, um, you know, a substantial number of states will have um, abortion restrictions or full out bans passed essentially immediately. And so um, we will just see people getting pushed farther and farther out. And so um, it's a sad time and it's an urgent time. And, um, you know, I'm very grateful for all of the allies that we have, you know, helping us to figure out, you know, how can we safely take care of people?
2: Mm -hmm. I mean, you're in a unique position to see what a post row future might look like on the front lines. Do you imagine that you'll essentially be doing the same procedures for the same women, but in California as opposed to in these other states as people just have to travel further and further?
3: I think there are so many questions about uh, what is going to happen, um, particularly in California. I mean. We are not kind of you know the first stop for many people who are going to be living in more restrictive states. But again, people are just gonna be getting pushed further and further out. Not only people who are coming from states with greater restrictions, but people who are living in states maybe that don't have restrictions but aren't able to access care in their home state um, because people from other states are coming there. So um, I think that we are definitely gonna see um, higher numbers of patients and, um, you know, I, I think we're all kind of trying to figure out what what the situation in California is going to look like. Yeah.
2: You know, thank you so much, Rebecca Taub. We know you're extremely busy obstetrician and gynecologist in the East Bay. You've been traveling to the Midwestern states to provide abortions for those in states uh, with restrictive laws. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, kind of giving us this uh, on the ground uh, look.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
2: We want to hear from our listeners as well with California positioning itself as the reproductive freedom state. Do you see a different role for yourself or feel called to a different kind of action in a post roe country? The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Uh, I want to bring in another doctor, Daniel Grossman, OBGYN and professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences and director of Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at ucsf welcome dr grossman thank you so much for inviting me so you also provide abortion access but a different type can you tell us what you've been working on
4: uh sure well i provide abortion care at san francisco general hospital but i also um lead a research program at ucsf and one area of focus has been the abortion pill or medication abortion um, which is a safe and effective way that people can access abortion care early in pregnancy up to about um, 11 weeks or so. Yeah.
2: And this is something that people have uh, been working on sort of telehealth uh, um, aspect of this as well. Can you tell us sort of what the future of this kind of uh, medical, uh, this sort of, uh, yeah, medical abortion holds as in a post Roe world?
4: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think we've learned so much from the pandemic. Um, there's been a rapid expansion of the use of telemedicine in every area of healthcare. Probably most everyone has had a telehealth visit um, over the past couple of years. And um, that also happened with medication abortion. And we there's been now um, you know, quite a bit of research published showing that uh, patients can safely and effectively have a medication abortion without ever coming into uh, a clinic. And I think, uh, you know, in a post-row scenario, uh, medication abortion provided through telehealth is going to be at least part of the answer, part of the way that people will continue to access safe care. Mm-hmm.
2: And do you see is there legal risk remaining in do like if you do this from california you send pills to a state post row in which there's a ban are you at legal
4: risk right now i would say uh, you know that's uh, it wouldn't be legal um you know it re- kind of remains to be seen exactly what these complete bans um might look like but um 19 states have bans on the use of telemedicine to provide medication abortion which are uh, the same states that are likely to ban abortion. Um, the, um, so I, there are definitely legal risks and there's more that needs to be done here in California to protect providers to allow us to do this. Oh, that's amazing. We're going to talk about more about California getting ready for a post-Roe world
2: after the break. We're joined right now by Daniel Grossman, an OBGYN and professor at UCSF in Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences. We would love to hear from you with California positioning itself as the reproductive freedom state. Do you see a different role for yourself or feel called to a different kind of action in a post Roe country? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQED Forum or forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before the break, we were talking with Dr. Daniel Grossman of UCSF about what California could do to provide more protection for doctors providing care across the country. We're now uh, also joined by Jessica Pinkney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, a nonprofit that helps patients access abortions by providing information, financial and logistical assistance. And she's also on the steering committee for California's Future of Abortion Council. That was a group that was convened for the first time in September. It's composed of leaders of many different reproductive health and justice organizations, and they've outlined a slate of recommendations to prepare the state for a post-Roe world. Thanks so much for uh, joining us, Jessica.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
2: Um, Dr. Grossman, maybe you can sort of finish your thought on what kind of legal protections uh, would be helpful for you in the work that you're doing, and then we can go broader with Jessica.
4: Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, as we started to talk about, like we have the technology to be able to at least help some people who are uh, in states with limited or or no access to care by providing medication abortion with telehealth um, and then mailing medications to them. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not the perfect solution. Medication abortion isn't for everyone. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. But the protections that we would need are, things like um, protecting uh, our medical licenses or the licenses of nurse practitioners, physician assistants, midwives who provide abortion care, protecting us against civil or criminal liabilities. Um, some of these um, protections have already been introduced in, in some bills that are moving through the legislature. Um, some states are even going further <laughs> in some of the, the bills that they've introduced. So it, it kind of remains to be seen what actually will, will go into effect. Um, Jess,
2: can you tell us a little bit more about the Future of Abortion Council and how it came together?
1: Absolutely. The Future of Abortion Council, the California Future of Abortion Council, uh, was put together in September at the urging of California Governor Newsom uh, following the uh, enactment of Texas Senate Bill 8. And in preparation for the fact that the Supreme Court was going to be hearing oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson in December, um, and there was a strong likelihood that uh, abortion access could be partially or completely eroded uh, based on that decision. So the governor asked uh, advocates, providers, uh, patients, clinics, Um, activists to come together and make a series of recommendations to his administration and the California legislature around uh, things that could be done in California to improve abortion access, not only for Californians, but also for those who may come to California to seek abortion care. So in December, we released 45 recommendations And um, in January, about 13 bills were introduced in the legislature based off of those recommendations. And all of those bills are currently moving through the legislative process right now.
2: Which of those do you think is the most urgent for possibly helping people from out of state?
1: Yeah, so we get this question a lot, and honestly, um, I, I cannot tell you that um, we we already prioritized the most important issues. There were, like I said, there were forty-five <laughs> recommendations in the report, and we have thirteen bills, uh, some of which uh, address more than one recommendation in the report. But this already is the the whittled down uh, set of recommendations it, that you'll see in these pieces of legislation. These are the priorities. Um, And I think what's really evident with this set of legislation is that um, abortion access is intricate. And uh, it is a network uh, of work that occurs between providers, clinics, patients, um, abortion funds, and practical support organizations and others, and you know, we can't really just pass one piece of legislation and say that we've solved the all of the the problems that exist in California. There really are multiple changes needed, and those changes are often interconnected.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean one of the things that's really striking is the extent just looking at the California future of abortion Council, the extent to which this really is like a, a network, it's a kind of infrastructure for by uh, providing, abortion care and what role do you see your organization playing within that network?
1: Sure. So Access Reproductive Justice is the only statewide abortion fund in California. So, so a few clinics across the state have internal abortion funds where they will help their patients access transportation, hotels other lodging or pay for the procedure itself but we're the only statewide organization um, essentially supporting anyone who calls our healthline so um, we are absolutely an intricate part of this system uh, we like i said we run a healthline monday through friday um, anyone who needs support in paying for their abortion or in what we call practical support like getting a ride to and from the clinic, getting a hotel stay for a multiple day procedure, uh, help with childcare, help with gas money, etc., cetera, is likely to call our organization for that support. So uh, we work really closely with clinics all across the state, sometimes even beyond California, uh, to make that process as easy as possible for the patients. And uh, we work closely with the patients who we lovingly call our callers, uh, to make sure that their needs are met to the best of our abilities, so that they can access the care that they need and deserve.
2: So I imagine a difficult part of the work that you're doing is just getting the word out to people who might need your help that that you exist. That you turn them into a caller from someone who's in need. What have you learned doing that here in the state that that might apply to other other states, and or is it going to be a different story trying to get the word out to people? in texas than it is in california
1: so what's interesting is there are actually over 80 abortion funds all across the country uh, in pretty much every state and there's a national umbrella organization the national network of abortion funds we've been doing this work for decades and we work really closely with each other um, to ensure that our callers their callers whoever's patients have the the care and support that they need so i will say yes i think it does look different state to state often if um, someone is looking for abortion care in texas even if they're going to travel uh, here to california they probably start with the abortion funds in mm. texas of which there are almost 10. Um, so We work really closely with the abortion funds in Texas. They might supply a plane ticket and we might help pay for the procedure or vice versa. Um, But in in terms of what we do here in California to get the word out, I will say about 90, 95% of our callers are referred to us directly from the clinic. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of work with clinics to make sure that they know that we exist in the state and that we are here and able to provide procedural and practical support to their patients. Um, So it's, it's, varied right we we work with the clinics we work with other abortion funds um and we also get calls referred callers referred to us from friends who have had abortions and used our services or folks who just google so there it's it's not kind of a one-stop solution right we 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 do a lot to make sure that that folks know that we exist and that we're here to support them
2: we're talking about California's preparations to provide abortion access, both for people here and nationwide in a post-Roe world, with Jessica Pinkney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, a nonprofit that helps patients access abortions, as well as Daniel Grossman, OBGYN professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, as well as the Director of the Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health Group at UCSF. Um, Dr. Grossman, want to... Come to you on this. You know, the pre Roe world is also pre internet. It's pre a lot of the communication tools that we now have that cross state lines uh, e- easily. Do you? Th- how, what role do you think these new ways of connection are going to play if, in fact, this you know draft Supreme Court ruling goes through and, and Roe v. Wade uh, is overturned?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a different world now uh, compared to 1970, um, and uh, it's different in terms of uh, you know the technologies we have for accessing abortion care, and yeah, as you say, also for communication and getting the word out. So um, I am optimistic that. Um, you know, people, you know, at least some people will be able to access um, safe abortion care, you know, using uh, telehealth, looking online, finding out resources, finding out where they can go and where they can travel to. I think, you know, the the work um, that Jessica talked about and um, that ACCESS does and the other abortion funds and practical support groups is just gonna be so critical um, and so I'm hoping that people will be able to find out more easily about these networks that exist that can help them travel to where they need to go to access care. Um, and also, uh, you know, inform people about how they can potentially access abortion care using telehealth right in their home, um, getting evaluated through a telehealth um, platform and then having medications sent to them. So I do think it. It opens up more options to people um, because of these advances in in technology and medical care.
2: Do you think that we'll see the same kinds of dangerous abortions that really typified the pre Roe world, and that many stories have been have been told about? Do you, or do you think there'll be some chance that because of the increased information and access that people have to out of state services? we'll be able to somewhat limit those really
4: negative downsides? Um, I mean, I certainly hope uh, that we'll be able to, to minimize, um, you know, the, the physical harms that come from unsafe abortion um, because uh, of the work that Jessica and others are doing to try to, you know, get people practical support and help them get to the care they need because of the safe technology that exists through abortion pills. Um, self-managed abortion uh, looks very different in 2022 um, compared to what it was like you know, in the 1960s. Uh, it's much, much safer using pills. You know, That said, uh, we're talking about a lot of people who live in states that are going to have um, you know, really likely no access to safe abortion care in the state. Um, and so even if the you know, majority of them are able to, to get the care that they need by traveling or, or through pills, I am worried that some people will use either potentially ineffective methods to try to self-manage their abortion um, or potentially unsafe uh, methods. I, I really hope that that will be, the, the, that will be just a, a small number of people. But unfortunately, I, I do think that that uh, will happen. Jessica Pinckney,
2: Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, how about you? I mean, this is not, the rest of the world is not the pre-Roe world. Um, And what are the most important changes, you think, that for for women seeking abortion care?
1: Well, first of all, I would say um, many of us in the reproductive justice movement are very clear that the decision in 1973 Roe v. Wade was the floor, not the ceiling. Uh, It gave folks the right to access abortion here, uh, but a right is only a right if you can actually access it. And uh, what we know is across the country, particularly for low-income folks, for people of color, uh, for young people, for people who are undocumented, Uh, for the LGBTQ community and so many more, uh, they have always faced barriers in accessing abortion care here in this country. So for many folks, we have lived in a post-Roe world for for quite some time. Um, Generally, I I do, I agree with Dr. Grossman. I think uh, we've made a lot of medical and technological advancements since uh, Roe v. Wade was enacted in the 70s. And um, I think people, most people will hopefully be able to continue to access care, um, whether it be traveling to a clinic for an abortion procedure itself or accessing telehealth uh, for medication abortion. Uh, folks will self-manage abortions because they they undoubtedly will not care carry pregnancies that they don't desire to carry. Um, and we know that folks have been self-managing their abortions for decades, if not centuries. Um, it's something that can be done safely and in somebody's home. Um, and thankfully, there are many organizations who um, try to provide people with information. Uh, if that is the decision that they they choose to make, but of course there will, you know, I think undoubtedly there will be folks forced to carry pregnancies to term that they do not desire. We are forcing people into um, parenting uh, or making, you know, decisions around adoption, etc. And uh, we know that it will just dis- disproportionately impact historically marginalized communities. Um, just like accessing abortion has always you know shown barriers for, for these communities. So um, I, I try to stay optimistic. I think we have a lot of solutions on the table. Um, but there are, are certainly folks who who will be be left behind um, and not be able to receive the, the support that they need. And that's that's not fair. It's not it's not human. um, And it's certainly not right.
2: Listener Lottie tweets, I'm worried that this is a slippery slope. The Supreme Court may say it states rights, but if it is decided that a fetus has rights, it's going to impact all pregnant people across every state. Someone will bring a lawsuit against a blue state for fetal rights. Jessica, is that something that your coalition is anticipating slash trying to get ahead of?
1: Yeah, so I will say this is definitely not my area of expertise. I'm not an attorney, Um, but the Future of Abortion Council, uh, we had many working groups that we convened, and one of them was around legal protections for providers and patients, as well as those who may support providers or patients. So this is definitely something um, that we're looking at, really making sure that folks are, are not criminalized. Um, for the decisions they make and trying to, to limit uh, lawsuits for, for accessing abortion care um, here in the state of California. Yeah.
2: We're talking about California's preparations to provide abortion access, both here in our state as well as nationwide in a post-Roe world, with Jessica Pinkney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice, which is a nonprofit that helps patients access abortions by providing information as well as financial and logistical assistance. She's also on the Steering Committee for California's Future of Abortion Council. We're also joined by Daniel Grossman, an OBGYN and a professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences, and Director of the Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at UCSF. Earlier we spoke with Rebecca Taub. She's an obstetrician and gynecologist in the East Bay. She's been traveling to Oklahoma and Kansas to provide abortions. And we'd love to invite you into the conversation. What do you think of California putting itself at the forefront of protecting choice? And what questions do you have about abortion access if Roe is in fact overturned in the way that seems like it might be? You can give us a call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And we're going to get to some calls right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about California's role in a post-Roe world with Daniel Grossman, OBGYN and professor at UCSF, as well as Jessica Pinckney, executive director of Access Reproductive Justice. And I want to invite Dorothea from Berkeley into the conversation. Welcome. Thanks.
5: Hi, thank you. So I heard that there aren't enough trained abortion providers, people who actually can do the procedure in California. So it's great. California is being so welcoming, and I'm, I'm really behind that. But I'm afraid that we don't have enough people to provide them. What's, what's going on with training? Thank that's you.
2: A great question, Dorothea. Um, let's uh, start with you, Daniel, and then we'll uh, go to Jessica. Thank you.
4: Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point. Um, I... I think um, you know, one problem is that the, those who are trained in California aren't always um, located in all the places where, they, where there's demand for care. And so that people are often concentrated in, in the larger cities and, and there are fewer providers in you know, more rural areas of, of the state. So um, I think we also need to be doing much more to train um, uh, certified nurse midwives, physician assistants and nurse practitioners um, who can legally provide abortion care here in California. Um, and I just want to mention one other thing uh, about training is that, you know, um, abortion training is a required component of, um, of residency training for uh, obstetricians and gynecologists. And, you know, OBGYN residents who are living in states that are, that are going to ban abortions won't be able to get that training in their states. And so it's one big question is, how are they going to be able to get the training that they need? My colleague, Dr. Jody Steinauer from UCSF, um, recently published a paper showing that there are about 650 OBGYN residents each year who are going to, living in states that are likely to ban abortion, who are going to need to access this kind of life-saving care, because it really can save the life um, of, a, of a pregnant person, um, you know, who needs an abortion. And um And it really remains to be seen, how are they going to be able to get that training?
2: Jessica, is the training of physicians something that your group or the, the broader coalition trying to address as well?
1: Yeah, so it's certainly something that the Future of Abortion Council looked at really closely. Um, Again, there was a working group specifically to address provider shortages and and building the provider pipeline. Um, I believe Dr. Grossman was actually part of that working group. So everything he just named is (laughs) certainly in line with the recommendations uh, that we made as as part of the Future of Abortion Council. Um, and again, you know, I name the, that's why there's really a holistic approach needed. Um, we need we need additional providers. We need to make sure that the folks who are able to provide already are um, are able to to be located in parts of the state where we may have significant shortages. Um, we need to make sure those people have legal protections uh, to provide care, and we need to make sure that their patients can can get to them and um, afford the procedure and have all of the support they need. So uh, it, again, really shines a light on the fact that we can't just make one change without making all of the necessary um, adjustments that are necessary to truly make California a reproductive freedom state.
2: Let's bring in another caller, Shahar from San Jose. Welcome.
0: Hi. Hello. Hello. Nice talking to you guys. Um, thank you for get, um, having me here. Um, I wanted to ask, how does the new Texas law and overturning uh, Roe v. Wade will? How will it affect abortion funds in those in states that um, will have uh, abortion be illegal? Um, will they still be able to to provide? Um, do you know anything about that? It's
2: a great question. Thank you so much, uh, Jessica.
1: Yeah. So I don't know as much about this as I would like to. Quite frankly, again, I'm not a, a lawyer. Um, but when SB8 was enacted, um, the the funds in in Texas were and have been able to to stay open. Um, They they make every effort possible to comply with the relevant federal and state laws um, and are simply providing information um, to to their callers. Um, It's it's not considered legal advice or anything like that. So as it relates to to SB-8, they are able to um, continue providing support to their callers. And we anticipate that that could be the same um, dependent on the the opinion um, from the Supreme Court. So, of course, um, it's a lot harder to fund abortion and practical support when folks are having to get on planes and travel long distances. Um, But I will say that uh, to this point in time, those funds have beyond risen to the occasion, um, and I imagine that they will continue to do the same, uh, despite whatever the Supreme Court decides.
2: You know, just one question that keeps kind of popping up for me is that as these laws change and we anticipate them getting more and more draconian an underground will develop and how does a group like yours that is operating, you know, fully within the legal framework of the state of California, how, how do you end up interacting with people who may have to skirt what they see as unjust laws or break the law in states where uh, abortion has been fully banned?
1: I mean, first of all, I want to be really clear. We do not need an abortion underground railroad. There is a network. Of abortion funds in this country that have pre- been providing this support for mm-hmm. decades, and it is predominantly built off of Black and Brown people. So I will say, um, you know, I don't, I don't um, work off of the premise that w- we will need some kind of underground system. The systems and the infrastructure are already in place, and they have existed for quite some time. Um, and in that regard, we are equipped and ready for this moment. And it's simply um, a matter of making sure that we have the resources necessary um, to fund and support uh, the, the network of abortion funds that have been doing this work always.
2: Do you think that network's going to be targeted, though? I mean, it, it has been targeted and, and will continue to be targeted ever more aggressively?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, I think many of our sibling funds have faced attacks uh, throughout the years, but quite frankly, abortion funds were built for this and Mm. we were built for this moment. We are, like I said, we are predominantly led by Black and Brown leaders, by the LGBTQ community. We have faced uh, racism, sexism, homophobia, Um, in our own personal lives, as well as in our work. Uh, And we're really unafraid and certainly unwilling to stop doing this work because um, of what is often empty threats. So I think, you know, we will continue to do this work. We are constantly ensuring that we have digital security and physical security in tip-top condition for, for our teams and for our callers. Um, and that of course becomes only the more important in, in these moments. Yeah.
2: Let's bring in Lynn from Palo Alto. Welcome Lynn. Hi Lynn. Can you hear me?
5: Oh yes, I can. Thank you. Oh, go ahead. Um, so I'm a, um, a retired, uh, nurse midwife, um, who's trained in both, um, medication abortion and, um, in clinic abortion, um, practice in both Portland, Oregon and San Francisco. And I have two questions since I've been out of the abortion care for three years. When when the um, telehealth medication abortions take place, are patients still receiving an ultrasound for dating? And my second question is the organizations that are um, expanding access, well, helping women get access to abortions. Is it part of the mission to expand the availability of LARC methods, long-acting reversible contraceptives, such as IUDs and Nexplanon? Hmm.
2: Thanks so much for uh, both of us. We'll take them in order. Dr. Grossman on telehealth and ultrasounds.
4: Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting question. As I said, you know, we've learned so much during the pandemic. And one of the things that we've learned is that um, people are very accurate in figuring out how far along they are in their pregnancies. So um, we recently completed a very large study led by my colleague, Dr. Lauren Ralph, um, showing that uh, asking people three simple questions um, to try to date the pregnancy is really very accurate and um, almost as good as, as ultrasound. Uh, to figure out whether people are in the window um, below 10 or 11 weeks to, to receive medication abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know we act, ask a series of questions. And of course, some people um, need to have an ultrasound, um, but most people can, we can figure out just based on these questions, whether they're eligible or not. So um, it's providers are moving toward this model, even sometimes when patients are coming into a clinic of not doing an ultrasound for everyone.
2: You know, I wanted to uh, stick with this for just a second, Dr. Grossman. I mean, if, if things go wrong in this medication abortion, how can you get help to people in a state that has banned abortion? Like, let's say they took it home to Texas, then, then what happens?
4: Yeah. Um, you know, Knowing that the success
2: rate is very high
4: also. Yeah, yeah and, and exactly. So I, I think that's really important to, to reiterate that medication abortion is very, very safe and very effective. So overall, it's about 97% effective, but that means that for about 3% of people who use it, they do need to have uh, an aspiration procedure to to complete the abortion. Um, you know, the uh, it, it's the process from a physical perspective um, of using medication abortion is really almost identical to uh, having a spontaneous miscarriage. Of course, the experience may be very different for, mm-hmm. for an individual patient, but from a physical perspective, it's really the same thing. And so um, people, uh, someone who has a complication or a question, um, you know, heavier bleeding than, than is expected should be able to go to a local emergency department or their local OBGYN and get care. Um, and honestly, it... it it's not even required that we as the clinicians, should even ask them whether they took something or whether this is a spontaneous pregnancy loss because the care is, is identical. Um, I do think there's gonna to need to be work done to educate um, emergency department um, clinicians, um, primary care clinicians who may not be familiar with the normal course of medication abortion. Um, so they um, kind of don't intervene unnecessarily Uh, in a a way that really isn't medically required to to help them understand what the normal process is like. I see. I see. Um,
2: Wanted to get to the other question as well. Um, Jessica Pinkney.
1: I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. It was about long. Yeah, sorry. It's about
2: long (laughs) acting reversible methods of of contraception and whether that's also part of um, the mission of the organizations or if that's uh, kind of in a, an adjacent part of the network?
1: Yes, absolutely. So while we identify as an abortion fund and a practical support organization, I think folks often think that the only thing that we support with is abortion, but we provide support for the full range of reproductive health care needs. So if someone calls us and they have an appointment uh, to, to get birth control and they need um, uh, a ride to the clinic or they need help I mean, it's pretty rare that someone would need help paying for it, given um, insurance and, and Medi-Cal in California. But if they did need help for whatever reason, we would provide that help. So uh, we, we again, are not clinicians. We're not provi- medical providers. We're simply simply providing the financial or practical support that people need to access reproductive health care. Um, and so if if folks are interested in um, LARCs or other forms of contraception, uh, we are more than happy to help support them in, in getting those. Um, but of course uh, all of their medical guidance is coming from their, their clinician.
2: Thank you. I want to bring in uh, one final caller, uh, listener in San Francisco. Welcome. Hi, welcome to the show. Can you hear me?
5: Oh, you yeah, you're talking
1: to me?
2: Oh, yes, I am. Sorry. I, I, I understood we weren't supposed to use your name, so uh, I was just calling it, on you without I, the name.
1: It, it's just, uh, it's related to the topic of... Uh, Access um, of abortions, but uh, it's another angle of it, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't never heard you discuss it. How about kids who are born to an unwanted parent or parents, and suffers all its life because of this basic re- rejection, and then ends up in Abusive relationships, it's it's Mm -hmm. a plague too. It's a problem that
0: has to be approached.
2: Yeah. Thank you uh, so much for for that perspective. And and Jessica Pinkney, I I imagine that your organization um, doesn't want that to happen.
1: Absolutely. I, I mean, again, we support our callers in making the decisions that are best for them. Um, And if that is carrying a pregnancy to term, then we're going to support to make sure that they get the prenatal care that they need um, and that they have access um, to an OBGYN and any other services that they may need. Um, We can also, if someone is interested in, in adoption, um, you know, help refer them to to a a, um, adoption agency or, you know, help them find the resources that they need. Um, Really the core of Access Reproductive Justice's mission is reproductive justice. So we are here to help people be able to determine for themselves if, when, and how they start their families. Mm-hmm. Um, this is an issue of bodily autonomy, um, and it's an issue of human rights. Um, I certainly hear the callers' concerns, and this is something we raise all the time when we force people to carry pregnancies to term that they don't desire. We know that their economic, um, socioeconomic uh, the outcomes for for that. Um, there's research that's been done through UCS UCSF, UCSF uh, the turnaway study that shows that folks who have been forced to carry unwanted pregnancies are more likely to find themselves in poverty, are more likely um, to experience difficulty putting food on the table for their for their families and and so much more, um, and so it's really important that we think again about these issues holistically, um, because it's it's about family and 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 community formation and um, forcing people to make decisions that they otherwise wouldn't make does not help anyone.
2: We've been talking about California's preparations to provide abortion access both here and nationwide in a post-Roe world with Jessica Pinckney, Executive Director of Access Reproductive Justice. She's also on the steering committee for California's Future of Abortion Council. Thank you so much for joining us. We're also joined by Daniel Grossman, OBGYN and Professor in the Department of Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Sciences, as well as the, the Director of the Advancing New Standards in Reproductive Health at UCSF. Thank you so much, Dr. Grossman. Thank you. And earlier we spoke with Rebecca Taub, an OBGYN in the East Bay who's been traveling to Oklahoma and Kansas. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with guest host Scott Schaefer.
0: Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sarriaho's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward.